since the beginning of this year, we've been studying together the book of Ephesians. We are in the fourth chapter and 29th verse. We'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. Um, I'd have you this morning join me in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Going to look specifically at verse 14, but read some other verses here as well. And this morning, we're facing two dangers as I see it. The first being that we are very familiar with the verses that we are going to read. The second being that the blessing of this day can be a great distraction. Now, there are many things that are good in their place. Family, food, gifts of love, all of these things are good in their place. But if they cause a distraction from seeing Christ, then they have become the most vile things because they have distracted us from the greatest. So I want to read these verses and then pray that the Lord would spare us from these two dangers of being, we think, overly familiar and then overly distracted and help us by his spirit to see the beauties of Jesus Christ and him becoming flesh to work out our redemption. If you'll join me in Chapter 1, follow along as I read. I'm going to read down at least through verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that through him, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the, wor- and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to You this morning, and we're asking You, Lord, to help us. Help us with our seeming familiarity with this passage. How much more than we already know can you teach us about Jesus Christ? So much more. So infinitely much more. Is there to know about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us? Lord, I pray for these next few moments that you would help us to put aside things that might distract from giving our attention and devotion to Jesus Christ. We pray that you by your Spirit would come and preach Christ to us. Let us not leave here knowing more about Him, but knowing Him in a saving way. We ask it in His name and for His sake. Amen. So, if you look at verse 14 with me again. This is the verse that I suppose the majority of us in the room could quote that we have memorized and perhaps have had memorized and hidden in our hearts for quite some time. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Anytime I preach from the Gospels, 
regardless of the actual gospel itself or the place in that gospel, I always try to read what J.C. Ryle has written concerning the words on the page. And here is what J.C. Ryle says about this 14th verse. He says, the subject of this sentence is a deeply mysterious one, but one about which it is most important to have clear views. Next to the doctrine of the Trinity, there is no doctrine on which fallen man has built so many deadly heresies as the incarnation of Christ. And you think about the, what we would term the false religions of our day, or those that would preach some type of perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not all, but many center around a misunderstanding or an outright denial or an outright perversion of the truth of Christ's incarnation. So what we have in John chapter 1, and really what the gospel of John unfolds for us, and also the first epistle of John, is great evidence from the scriptures that Jesus Christ was and is God, and he did become fully man. This is the beginning of, of the gospel. This is a necessity, an absolute necessity of the gospel. And we have to be reminded as we are considering it and praying that the Lord would help us understand it. Here I borrow Matthew Henry's words. He says, The mystery of Christ's incarnation is to be adored. We're to look at it with wonder. It is to invoke in us all kind of gratitude and thanksgiving and awe and wondered. He goes on to say, it is not a doctrine to be overly pried into. And I think what he means by that, if we with our carnal reason, being creatures ourselves, try to pry too far into this mysterious doctrine, this hypostatic union to use, the theological term of the union in the person Jesus Christ of God and man, then we will realize that there are limits to which we can go. This is a doctrine to be believed by faith and to be gloried in. To take as the scripture presents it to us. And interestingly, when we get to verse 14, even though through the first 13 verses, John has used the word as a name for Christ Verse 14 is the last place in his gospel where he uses the word as a description or definition or even a name of Jesus Christ. From here on in his gospel, it's Christ, it's Jesus, it's Lord, or it's some other combination of those three. And so I think it's significant here. It's like the word of God has come to a resting place here in verse 14. And once he has become flesh, once he has become fully man, once these two natures have joined themselves together, then the scripture through the apostle John refers to him according to his manhood. Jesus Christ, Savior, Lord, Master. So the first thing that I want to try to bring to our attention again and to remind us of is the great condescension of the Word of God. And here I'm not speaking of the book that you hold in your hand. I'm using the term and the name as John uses it here in the prologue to his gospel, the Word of God being Jesus Christ himself. We speak of the condescension, Condescension meaning that he gave up so much glory to make his way into his own creation. But I wonder how much we really embrace it, glory in it, stand in awe and wonder of it. The first 13 verses that precede this great statement of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us are full of descriptions of the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. And so let's run through those quickly. We'll go through them, at least the ones that are contained in the first five verses. And again, this is the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. What types of things do the Scriptures tell us about Him that He enjoyed prior to becoming the babe in the manger at Bethlehem? 
And I think all of these things are narrowing down as if through a funnel until we get to the 14th verse. And then when we get to the 14th verse, it's like the lid is taken off. And our minds are are fully standing in awe of the person that we just read of in the first 13 verses has so greatly humbled himself to come and be born of a virgin, voluntarily willing to do this in, reason being, great love and obedience to his Father, of course, but also in great love for fallen sinners. If you find yourself sitting here this morning outside of Jesus Christ, then I pray these verses, the Lord would take these verses and make them so alive to you, even though you've heard them over and over before, that you would fall before Christ the Word become flesh in absolute adoration and fear and realize that in He and in He alone is your salvation to be found. So let's look at some of these glimpses of the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. One of the central doctrines concerning Jesus Christ is, his, is the fact that He is eternal. He is not created. Here again, this is a point to which our minds go to a certain point and they stop to understand eternity and the eternal being of the Trinity. There are limits to which we can go, but to have our minds informed, this is the beginning of the glory of Him becoming flesh, is that He has existed from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. We can't even really begin to fathom the blessed fellowship from all eternity that the Father and the Son and the Spirit enjoyed. Can you imagine what bliss there was in that existence before creation of mankind, before the creation of the world. In the beginning was the Word from all eternity, and the Word was with God. There is this great fellowship. And lest we think otherwise, the Scripture tells us very plainly that the Word was God. So just in this first sentence of John's Gospel, how much of Jesus Christ are we privileged to know? He is eternal He had perfect fellowship as being the second person of the Godhead with the Trinity. And yes, in fact, he himself is God of very God. But then there's more. What other descriptions of glory are we given here about Christ before the incarnation? All things were made through him. If there is anything made in this universe of ours it was made by Jesus Christ the scripture goes to great length to press that upon us and it goes to great length to tell us that he is now sustaining those things that he has made so he is in every way the omnipotent power of God in creation And remember, we're pouring these things through the funnel to get to the 14th verse. But just this one point, if we could just pull this one off the page and realize to some degree that the God who created everything, Christ who made everything and who is sustaining everything, holding everything together, is the same Christ who humbled Himself and made entrance into His creation in the most lowly means. but we have more here in the opening of John's Gospel. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In the greatness and the glory and the splendor of these first five verses, there is also great tragedy. You know what the great tragedy is? That continued still today, the light of Jesus Christ shines in the darkness, but there are those sitting in darkness who do not comprehend it. 
if you have any exposure to the gospel of Christ at all, and everyone sitting in the room has had great exposure to the gospel, and yet you remain either unconvinced or certainly unconverted, if you have not come to that point where the Spirit of God so works in your heart where he gives faith and even repentance like we spoke of this morning to make you willing in the day of his power to come to Christ, then my only counsel for you would be, even now where you sit, in your heart, in words that only you and God know, cry out to God to give you this understanding to see the light. Because if you don't, the scriptures are very clear that those who sit in darkness and do not comprehend the light of Jesus Christ, if they persist in that unbelief, if they persist in that rejection, and please know, those that have had the type of exposure that you and I have had to the gospel of Jesus Christ, those two things immediately apply to us. We are persisting in unbelief for whatever reason. For whatever reason, there are those who hear this message of the gospel, and I realize that at the back of that, there is this operation of the Spirit that must be forefront, but nonetheless, we as men have responsibility before God to hear the truth, to respond to the truth. So can I encourage you, young person or old person, whatever the hindrance is, that is keeping you from coming to Christ. Beg mercy of God and jump over that hindrance. Come to the saving light of Jesus Christ. There is an old hymn. I don't think it's even in our hymnal that we sing from. Some of you remember this old hymn, The Light of the World is Jesus. I don't remember if it's the second or the third verse. It says something like this. You dwellers in darkness with sin-blinded eyes, the light of the world is Jesus. Go wash at his bidding, and light will arise. The light of the world is Jesus. If you are not openly professing and confessing Jesus Christ, then you are in darkness with sin-blinded eyes. Takes us back to the fifth verse. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Then we're given this information about John, the witness of the true light, whom the Scripture says was not that light he came to point to and bear witness to that light. But all of these things in the first five verses tell us of the glory of Christ before His incarnation. It makes all the more wondrous the verses that Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, exhorting us to humility. In exhorting believers to humility, Paul points to the greatest act of humility that mankind or this world, this universe has ever known. The greatest act of humility is what John says here in verse 14, the word became flesh. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. When we use Paul's words as commentary on what John wrote in the first five verses of his gospel, it just makes the light shine more brightly, doesn't it? Even though Jesus Christ is eternal, had blessed eternal fellowship, as being the second member of the Trinity, even though He was and is God, even though He is the omnipotent Creator of all things, and even though in Him and in He alone does the light of men dwell, yet Paul tells us that He made Himself of no reputation. 
He who has the greatest reputation, not just on earth, but in heaven. The Prince of glory, the Prince of heaven. He made himself of no reputation and took the form of a bondservant. Is he a king? Indeed. Did he come with the pomp of a king? Absolutely not. Another way the scriptures detail for us the great humility of Christ. Paul goes on in that chapter and says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. God became flesh. Interestingly, in this 14th verse, this is John's way of telling the nativity story of Christ. Think of all the, gospel, all of the details that Matthew gives us in his gospel and all of the details that Luke would give us in his gospel concerning the nativity of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. John summarizes it in just nine words. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Take note of the word flesh in verse 14. It speaks of not just the body of Christ, but of your body and mine. Sometimes we wrongly assume that the body Jesus Christ bore was, all, was along the same line of the pre-fall body of Adam. Now, obviously, we must maintain the absolute perfection and sinlessness of Jesus Christ, but the flesh that he took upon himself was the flesh of mankind. The Scripture proves this to us in these ways that He got hungry. He grew weary. He needed to sleep. When he fasted miraculously in and of itself for 40 days in the wilderness, his physical body had deteriorated to such a point that the angels had to come and minister to him. This is in no way infusing sin into the perfect perfection of Christ, but what it does do for us is help us to see that Christ became a real man. He was not a super spiritual being. He was not an angel. He was a man just like you and a man just like me, even though the scriptures maintain that he was God. Thus the saying, fully God and fully man, or some categorize it this way, he was fully God and really man. Again, how far can our minds go in this, in this vein? Not far. But we believe it as being true because we trust the veracity of the Word of God. This is more than mystery. This is the very heart of the Gospel. And think of its glory. We're told in in detail, Matthew and Luke, that at His birth, angels, angelic beings, invaded space and time to sing with great rapturous voices of the birth of a Savior. Unlike what we see in the rest of Scripture, not just an angel, but a multitude of the heavenly host who, by the way, had seen the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ, and Peter tells us are now in great amazement and wonder as they see the Prince of Heaven humble Himself to the point of being laid in a lowly manger. Their only response to it was to sing hallelujah. Because they were also privileged to witness or they were also privy to witness 
the fall of man, but now they understand that the Savior who would right all of this wrong, the second and greater and better Adam, would come and make all of this right. He would bear the sins of his people. And their only response is to invade creation and sing hallelujah to Christ the King. And to point to his humility even further. To whom did they sing this song? We know it was to the lowly shepherds. To the most base and low. But yet they were privileged to see this angelic host singing. The scripture tells us they made haste to go to Bethlehem. Why don't you make haste? And run to Christ like these lowly shepherds did. What's keeping you from it? Sometimes it boils down to nothing more than pride. We're pointed again to the example, the greatest example of humility the the world has ever known. The omnipotent creating Christ humbling himself. Christ humbled himself for sinners. Sinner, will you humble yourself for him and come to him? By faith, casting your all upon him, confessing that Christ, if you do not save me, then I will not be saved. If you do not condescend and come to me, then I cannot ascend to you. And that's the real point, or one of the real points of this condescension of Christ. He did what we could not do. We could not climb to Him. We could not robe ourselves in glory and go into His fellowship. So He did what was necessary. He unrobed Himself of glory and came into our filth, into our sinful humanity, all the while remaining sinlessly perfect completely fulfilling His Father's law, His own law, being subject to it. It took the God-man to redeem fallen man. No one lesser, nor anything lesser, could have accomplished our redemption. The verse goes on to say, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you key in on the word dwelt, you'll understand it's the word tabernacle. It's the word for a tent. Much has been written and and supposed about this tabernacling of Christ among us to the point that some assume that it was during the Feast of Tabernacles that Christ was born. Could be. Quite honestly, I don't know. But I do know the word speaks to His actually coming and living and taking up residence with us for a time, the space of roughly 33 years. But don't wrongly think that when Christ ascended into heaven, He disrobed Himself of the flesh that He took on in verse 14. One of the truths of Scripture is in the ascension of Jesus Christ, with His now glorified body, He ascended into heaven where He still exists and is seated at the right hand of God in this glorified existence of this body. And the angels say there in verse chapter 1 of Acts Acts, that He will come in like manner just as He ascended into heaven. So he tabernacled with us, dwelt among us for the space of three decades. But he is still the God-man. He is still the perfect, sinless Son of God in a glorified body, still bearing the marks and the wounds of the redemption that he worked out for us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His condescension. We've seen His pre-incarnate glory. But what about what John says? What evidence does John give? 
I mean, is this not a bold claim for John to make? And if we view it just in that sense that this is his testimony, obviously we understand all the scriptures inspired of God. John was writing as he was moved along by the Spirit. But if we understand it just as his testimony, notice what he says, and we beheld his glory. Maybe we ask the question, how? How, John, did you see the glory of Jesus Christ? Most theologians with far greater minds than mine think that John is here attesting to seeing Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Could certainly be that. Most likely is that. Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, Luke chapter 9 record for us the transfiguration of Christ on the mountain there with three of his closest disciples where brightness and light he became brightness and light to the point of which the gospels tell us his clothing was as white as no launderer on earth could make them Elijah and Moses appeared to him there. Peter, who was one of the privileged disciples to be with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, also Peter, the one whom the Gospels tell us, spoke because he didn't know what to say. Peter writes later in life, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, We do not follow cunningly devised fables. It's important that we understand what Peter has saying. Many people throughout the ages and in our own age have reduced the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the actual facts of concerning Jesus Christ, to a cunningly devised fable. And so Peter says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so again, we ask the question this time of Peter, where were you an eyewitness of his majesty? Thankfully, he gives an answer. He says, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So when we take these things and we put them together, we can come up with a doctrine or a belief or a statement like this. Though taking on human flesh, shrouded in mystery the glory of Christ as being God, on the Mount of Transfiguration the glory of Christ the fullness of His glory as the God-man was clearly made evident. Here we have the words of John, we have the words of Peter, but listen to how John now supposedly later in life, now the aged apostle in his first epistle says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. In other words, John is saying, we have seen Christ with our eyes. We have heard Him with our ears. We have touched Him with our hands. He is all that He has said He is. He, he is everything that the Scripture declares Him to be. He goes on to say, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And do you remember how John concludes that? He gives a purpose statement. When he says, in these things we write to you so that, do you remember? Your joy may be full. We beheld his glory. 
And we attest to it, he says, so that your joy may be full. He goes on here in the 14th verse of chapter 1 to qualify what he means by the beholding of the glory of Christ, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. This is unique to John, the only begotten of the Father. Begotten, not created. Begotten, not made. Remember, he opens his gospel by speaking of the eternal existence of Christ. And he says of him, to end the verse, that he is full of grace and truth. And with Paul writing to Timothy in chapter 3 in verse 16 of his first letter, we conclude along with him that great indeed is the mystery of godliness. God became flesh. And in doing so was full of grace and truth. Here's an important point for us to realize and to give credence to. Countless thousands, most likely numbering in countless millions, have received grace from Christ resulting in salvation. Yet, he remains full of grace, having not been diminished in the least. What does that mean? It means there's grace for you. That means you can come to faith in Christ today because he remains and continues to be full of grace. And he is full of truth. Charles Spurgeon says, The two divine things which are more clearly seen in Jesus than anything else are grace and truth. In other words, he's saying, if you look to Christ in the Scriptures as they unfold Him, and as the Spirit of God bears witness to Him in your own spirit, what you see there most gloriously displayed, unlike you will see it anywhere else in creation, is grace and truth. Spurgeon goes on to say, He has brought truthful grace and gracious truth. He is full of both. I, I love the way that he terms that. It perfectly weds these things together. Truthful grace and gracious truth. If we look at those individually... Jesus Christ is full of grace, or again, Spurgeon calls it a truthful grace. There is nothing in Christ to deceive. There is nothing in Christ to hoodwink you. What you will find in Him, if you will but come to Him, you will find grace and truth. Turning to J.C. Ryle again, listen to his words. He says, Christ came full of the gospel of grace in contradistinction to the burdensome requirements of the ceremonial law. Just meditate upon that for just a moment. He came in contradistinction to the burdensome requirements of the ceremonial law. Please understand this the way that I'm saying it. Coming to Christ is easy. What I mean by that, not that you don't have to humble yourself. It's easy in the sense that there is no work that you have to do 
There is no amount of obedience that you must perform. There is nothing that you must work up in yourself. You don't have to do anything prior to coming to faith in Christ, but just come to Christ. There is no burden in coming to Christ. The way is open. But He also, according to J.C. Ryle, came, Christ came, full of truth. He qualifies it by saying, real, true, solid comfort in Christ, which is also in contradistinction to all the types and figures and shadows of the law of Moses. Now, again, meditate upon that. The Old Covenant is full of references, types, figures, shadows that are veiled Christ's. But now once Jesus Christ has come, that veil is taken away in Him. And now what J.C. Ryle says is gloriously true. Christ has come not only in contradistinction to the burdensome requirement of commandments, but in contradistinction to types and figures and shadows. Now we have the full picture. Now we know exactly who Christ is. He is the eternal God who created everything in this world. He came into this world and took on flesh. J.C. Ryle finishes these thoughts by saying this. In short, the grace of God and the full truth about the way of acceptance were never clearly seen until the Word became flesh and dwelt among us on earth and opened the treasure house and revealed grace and truth in His own person. Not until the truth of verse 14, the Word becoming flesh, was there such clear revelation about the way of salvation, the necessity of a Redeemer. We are in every way without excuse. We have general revelation in nature, creation, that, that calls us to stand before it in absolute awe and wonder. But even greater, we have clear, special revelation of Jesus Christ and the way of salvation. You have no excuse. If your eyes close in death and you have not yet come to Christ, you are absolutely without excuse and are rightly and justly to be considered an object of the wrath of God for all eternity. You realize that? You can appeal to nothing. There is no appeal that can rightly be made that will excuse you from persisting in your sin. You can't say, Lord, you made me shy, and I died in my shyness. You can't say, Lord, you did, you created me in this way. There is no blame to be placed back upon your Creator. If you persist in your sin and die in your sin, the fault lies squarely with you. Jesus Christ has come full of grace and truth. What kind of response should we have to these things? Well, in thinking upon that, as I close, my, my thoughts went to, again, John, what he would write in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5. You don't have to turn there, but just listen as I read. John there is given a glimpse into what we would rightly call the throne room of heaven in, in Revelation chapter 4. And he says there, I'll just pick up reading in verse 8, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. 
The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes all around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders themselves fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Has it ever crossed your mind that these that are giving such great praise to the Lamb slain are unredeemed? What do I mean by that? There is no redemption for the angelic host like there is redemption for fallen man. Jude tells us that the angels that fell are reserved forever in chains and in darkness. These that are here are still in their perfect creation, but what of us that have known fallenness, that have known the depraved nature and deceitfulness of sin who now by the light of the scriptures have been told if we are persistent in that sin and die in that sin then we will forever be objects of the wrath of God but Christ has come the word became flesh dwelt among us he was full of grace and truth, and He has worked out our redemption now as those redeemed. How can we not join in this song? You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. But if you fast forward through the first half of chapter 5, You'll notice that in the face of all of this glory and worship and that is consistently and persistently happening around the throne of God, there is a moment of great silence and a moment of even weeping in heaven. John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. So what is John's response? He says, I wept much because no one was found worthy. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and I beheld in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Who came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne? It was the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And his glory was beholden. And he was full of grace and truth. In verse 8 of this fifth chapter, Now when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Again, this Lamb is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Each of these had a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Make the connection. There is no lamb to be slain unless the word became flesh and dwelt among us and his glory was displayed. 
and he was full of grace and truth. John continues. He says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, living creatures and elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and a thousands of thousands. And they were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, strength, honor, and glory, and blessing, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea, and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. His glory was beheld as one full of grace and truth. But He came to work out redemption. He came to bear your sin. And He has returned from whence He came. And He is once again the object of perpetual and eternal praise. Hallelujah. Thank God for the humility of Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despised its shame. Hallelujah, what a Savior. I pray He is your Savior. There is no other name under heaven by which you will be saved than that name which is above all names, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the light of the world. We're thankful for Jesus Christ, eternal God, robed in flesh, Glorious, full of grace and truth, who worked out our redemption upon the cross of Calvary, who bore our sin, who removed it as far as the east is from the west and drowned it in the depths of the sea. We're thankful for the birth of a Savior. We're thankful for the life of a Savior, for the shed blood of a Savior for the resurrection of the Savior, for His ascension back into heaven, where now He is hymned as the Lamb lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. We give you all thanks and praise for Him. And our prayer is as we conclude this service, is that you would draw more unto yourself. That you would effectually call by your Spirit. Call men and women, boys and girls, to Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth still. We pray and ask it in his name. Amen.